Hello and welcome to another episode of That 60s Recording Podcast, the podcast that has conversations inspired by the golden era of recording. I hope you've all had a absolutely fantastic week. Um, this week is the second part of my conversation with Nashville recording engineer and producer Ryan Poole, who is also a member of the band Night Tides, that's spelt Night N-I-T-E. Um, this week we focus on my favourite topic ever, which is drum recording. Um, and Ryan, as you found out at the end of the last episode, has a sort of um, constricted setup. Um, so he's had a really interesting journey to drum recording through working um, as a sort of, uh, assistant at a larger studio and being brought up in the usual manner of lots of mics everywhere to suddenly having to find a way to record using a fairly minimal setup, which is uh, obviously kind of something that I enjoy talking about. So we'll dive straight into this. Um, in fact, before we do, also notice that the that Spotify has now introduced some form of review system. Um, so if you're listening to this on Spotify and you would be so kind to tap the three dots uh, in the sort of wherever it is corner of the podcast and uh, leave a uh, hopefully a favorable review for the podcast, that would really help with uh, listings and all whatever jazz that that does help with. But that would be much appreciated. Thank you. Um, so here we go. Straight on with part two of my conversation with Ryan Poole. I am going to preface this now by saying uh, to everybody who is listening, if we've started this officially now, that um, me and Ryan are having this conversation for the second time because I made a foolish error of not pushing record on the Zoom meeting, um, which considering I'm, what, 90-odd episodes into <laughs> into this podcast, you'd think I'd be a little bit more proficient than I am, um, but apparently not. So we're going to reenact this last part of the conversation, which was... Um, I'm actually quite looking forward to, <laughs> um, and I think it will be. Um, I think it will be slightly different, but there'll be there might be a couple of occasions where it feels as though um, I'm forcing uh, something that I know is has happened from yesterday, <laughs> or we might go like as I said yesterday, and it's a, something that yeah. you guys don't know, and it also explains why my voice will suddenly sound um, like it's being recorded in my kitchen, which it is, um, as opposed to my studio, <laughs> which it was yesterday. So thanks for rejoining me, Ryan. I appreciate it. No problem, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we ended on drums. We were going to talk about drums. And I want to know, uh, again, <laughs> um, about your drum mic setup and the way that you, um, you know, sort of the approach that you've got towards drum micing in your studio. Yeah, so uh, drums for me, I... I I came up in a studio in San Diego called Studio West as an intern and then went to uh, school at the Art Institute. And so I learned drums the modern way. And, you know, that's a kick in, kick out, snare top, bottom, uh, direct mics on all the toms, stereo overhead and uh, stereo rooms. And, um, you know, maybe if you're being clever, a, a mono you know, a uh, smash mic or whatever, everybody calls it a different thing yeah. or a knee, a knee mic. And that yeah. was kind of the extent of creativity was, do you have a mono mic and what will you do with it? <laughs> yeah. And so for the longest time, that's how I did drums. And then I found myself in the, the current studio I'm in and I was limited, uh, in every way, but especially by microphones and preamps. So when I first got this space, I just had the the UAD Apollo. And I thought I would never record drums here. Like I would only do overdubs and and mixes and that I would um, always do my drums at, you know, major commercial studios. And then I had a client come in who wanted drums and kind of, they didn't tell me in advance. They just showed up with a drummer. <laughs> And so we did, I mean, I was not prepared at all. And so I think I did like one overhead and a snare mic and a kick mic. And I think that was as many channels as I could spare. Um, and, and, they, and, and they were happy with this. Uh, you know, they didn't, they didn't have any interest in going anywhere else to do it. Yeah. Well, also what they were doing was more for like a live video performance thing. Okay. And so in the end, um, I don't even think they would have noticed. And, you know, and I triggered the snare to kind of help that out a bit. 
But um, sorry, that, I'm going to pause you one second. Aria, you really need to stop singing. You're going to have to go up to bed or go into the living room if you want to. I want the telly on. You can have the telly on in the living room, darling, but you can't have anything on in here. Where's your, where's your iPad? Right, would you like to take my phone and watch YouTube on my phone? Right, but you need to go into the other room. All right, you can't be in this room. And can you shut the door, please? She's just trumpeting with loud mouth going... <laughs> <laughs> yes, thank you. <laughs> Kids have this kind of like... Um, uh, like a, I don't know what it is. It's like a switch when you're either on FaceTime or Zoom or something and you can have <laughs> the most serious discussion beforehand and they still just don't listen. As soon as that <laughs> conversation starts, it's like they just go on to... Even then when I was telling her off, she's just smiling away at me. As if like, <laughs> I know, I'm annoying. <laughs> um, so anyway, we were um, talking about... Um, so it was a live recording, so very, you know, must have been slightly less pressure than if it was going to be a record, I suppose. Right. There was there wasn't a lot of pressure to make this anything special, um, and and anyhow, when I got to the end of it, I was like, you know, the drums really don't sound that bad with a mono overhead and and a kick and a snare. Like it, it worked for the situation, and so then I had a client come in and they wanted to do. Um, you know, they wanted to do drums and I was like, cool, well, so we should go to a major studio and it's going to be, you know, 600 to a thousand dollars for the day. And that's the best way to record drums, you know? And like, ah, can we do it at your place for free? And I was like, well, maybe. (laughs) And so I, you know, had heard of the Glenn Johns technique. And so I watched a bunch of YouTube videos. I was like, all right, four mics, this can be done. And by that time, I had gotten this um, Alltech 1220 console I use. Uh, so now I'm up to, you know, eight inputs at a time. So I'm like, okay, with eight inputs, I could do the Glenn Johns and have room for talkback and guitar and everything else. So did the Glenn Johns technique. I had to borrow some microphones to pull it off. And then when I actually got to mixing the track, I realized that the drum sounded super cool. And they sounded... Um, they sounded vintage, but that's what we were going for. And, um, and I realized so many things that I've been told or heard over the years about, you know, maybe the, the, um, doing 12 mics on a drum kit might be overkill and that actually sometimes the sound sounds better when you don't have so many mics and so many phase problems. But I think it, I think it's hard when you have the options to not use them, you know, um, and when you go to a commercial studio and you have all of these great mics and all these great preamps and compressors, it's like, we're paying for this stuff. Like, let's use every single one of them. <laughs> but it's only when I got into my own space where I just don't have the budget to be able to have all those things that I, that I out of necessity, stripped back to four mics and realized, well, actually, you know what? I hardly ever use a hi-hat mic. Like, and, and if I do, it's not very much. And you, you get a lot of hi-hat in the rooms. And uh, actually, if you think about it, overheads are also room mics, you know, particularly if you put them far enough. Um, yes. Or by, by that, I mean that you get room on it. It's just the room mics get more room. Yeah. <laughs> and so, um, you know, and since then I've realized with, if you throw those mics into Omni, you get even more room on them, you know, if you pull them back for it. So these limitations caused me to do techniques that otherwise, like I'm prone to excess. I would love to do all of the microphones, but <laughs> out of necessity, I've stripped back and, and found that there's actually a lot of validity to that. And, and then since then, I've started adding some of the mics back, but every time I add a mic back, now it's for a reason. Yeah, that's really, that's really important way of thinking about it and i'm listening to i'm kind of picturing my studio i had a bit of a re rewire i suppose you'd call it and that makes it sound like it's more um more sort of technical than it actually was just it was unplugging stuff and putting it in different places (laughs) um and i've got a 1073 one of the aml the audio maintenance limited 1073s Uh that's not being used currently and an 1176 that's not being used just because in the current setup i i have send it to me 
<laughs> it was just nothing nothing that I wanted it to be on and yeah. at, in that moment in time I was just like oh I could I could put it on that but I just sort of don't really want to and and now they're just they're in the patch bay but they're not patched in and it's exactly that thing you know part of me was like oh well, I sh- maybe I should just put it on that because then it's being used and, and I was like well why not you know it's going in my Alice pre's they sound great why would I change it up for just for the sake of it it was um but I know that feeling of like, you know the all of the options, so you've got to use them all. <laughs> yeah, that's great restraint you're showing not to use the eleven seventy six. Well, um, in a, in its defense or my defense, it's just one of the warm audio ones. It's not a, not on a serious universal audio eleven seventy six. I would you know I would uh, gotcha. I, you know I'd remortgage my house for one of those, but my wife wouldn't let me. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm I'm kind of curious. We didn't actually speak about this yesterday, but I'm I'm interested in what it was like interning at a studio because that's not a an opportunity that many people get to have these days. It's um, you know, I've spoken to a few people, few producers for the podcast who have, and I think it's kind of it's quite an important thing. You know, I've I've had mm. one or two people come to my um, you know, my studio and look at the way I do things and observe that, and I think that's kind of a really important thing for younger um you know, 20 somethings to be doing, um, or late teens to be doing, um, as opposed to just watching YouTube videos. Um, what was that right. like for you? You know, <clears throat> it's one of those things that I think at the time mostly felt boring, um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, but it also felt incredibly exciting. Um, I, I think after doing it for eight months, I got to the point where I was like, all right, I kind of want to move on now. Um, but it's, it's so, yeah, it's, it was such a juxtaposition of things because in one sense, it's like, oh, some cool artist is in today. I, I know one time they had, uh, oh, Noah and the whale. Oh yeah. You've heard of them. Yeah, and yeah. I was, I had, they were big at the time and I was like, Oh, an artist who's big is here. How you know that was really exciting, and I got to like meet them and, um, you know, set up a microphone, and so that felt very important and exciting. But most days, what you do is, you know, at the studio I was at, it's like you come in and you have a a list of cleaning responsibilities, and you're going to spend about two hours to take care of all those things, and then any time after that is just sort of. Now that's what you've done your cleaning to earn. And, and sometimes that was great because sometimes there's an engineer there who is willing to let you come in and help them set up. And you got to see how they mic'd a guitar cabinet or drums or whatever. Um, maybe you even got to run cables or do something, you know, and learn. Um, but a lot of times, you know, sessions were closed or just they, they weren't interested in that or they had done the setup the day before. And then there you know you're just hanging out in the lobby waiting to be helpful to somebody who needs to know where the soda machine is <laughs> and so i think this almost is like a principle for young people i think in general um it's like the thing that you really want to do in life it's just not going to happen for you overnight and it's not going to be as glamorous and as quick as you really wish it was going to happen but like all of these experiences um that you can have in your formative years end up being helpful down the line and you don't know how they're going to be helpful but they they and you don't know what's the important stuff at the time but in hindsight it's great so when i got my own recording studio you know i had been taught how to clean a studio and make it presentable for clients and you know, how to make the sodas look nice in the refrigerator, things like that. Um, And so when I got my own studio, it it was a lot smaller than the place I'm in now. I I remember, you know, cleaning it up each day and trying to make it as nice as I could, even though it was, I mean, it was tiny. It was 20 feet by nine feet or 18 feet by nine feet. Yeah, yeah. Um, But... I, I, when I was sweeping it, I would think, you know, I'm training right now to, to have something bigger and better in the future. And, and if I can take care of this small space and do a good job of it, you know, that's going to prepare me for when I have something bigger. So my current studio is like 2000 square feet and 
and and the same things apply. I was sweeping up last night, you know, and no matter how old you get, you're probably still going to have to sweep up. Um, and, and that's, I mean, that's not the only thing I learned, that, <laughs> you know, um, but I, I, I understand what you're saying. And I, I think that that's really interesting. And, you know, going from studios that I remember being in when I was sort of a, a young teenager or like mid to late teens, you know, starting out in bands and, you know, either be at rehearsal studios and then you go into, um, you know, make EPs or singles or whatever we were doing back then. Um, and you go to these studios that are grubby and there's, it's, they're just not maintained. And I grew up thinking that that was almost an acceptable, like studios are supposed to be dirty and messy and that's what yeah. they have to be. And, um, my dad will be listening to this. And I had a fun, funny conversation with him when he came up to my place the first time. And he was like, oh, it's a, you know, it's, it's really, really clean and tidy. And it's like, well, <laughs> yeah, of course it is. I work here every day. Like, what, what did you think it was going to be? You know, I'm, I'm a clean and tidy person. <laughs> you know, it's, it's not going to be anything else. And it's that, that sort of um, mentality to, to, to make it a comfortable environment to be in. You know, I'm constantly thinking in, in exactly that same way, looking around my space. I've just been out today and bought some lampshades because um, a couple of the lights, I was like, they just, it's after our conversation yesterday. Yeah. It's like, it needs to, needs to look a bit better. So, I, I, you know, every time one of those little situations occurs, you have to sort it. And I think that you get that by seeing a commercial studio. You know, right. I, I saw, I've seen it in the times that I've been down to, um, you know, the bigger commercial studios, um, you know, in, in London mainly, they, they all operate on that exact same level. And uh, I, I think another big part of it, especially um, this is something I, I got from Abbey Road the few times that I've been down there is is how organized they are for sessions. You know, they fill out a session oh, yeah. sheet the day before every se- every session. They know every microphone that's being checked into that session. And even if it's the simplest session ever, they're, they're pre-planning in their mind what's not even in the mind they're pre-planning on paper what needs to be delivered for that session and i like that organized um approach to it you know the times i've had artists in where it's not been where i've not really thought about it and i've winged it i've been sweating and that's mm-hmm. not a, a nice position to be in at all and i suppose that's probably i would assume that's something that you must have picked up from your internship that you know just whether you're aware of it or not all of those little nuances that make a, a studio appear professional, you know, as opposed to just sort of haphazard. Yeah. And then you take what works for you and, and leave behind what you don't need. And I think it was good for me to see, you know, to fill out a session sheet and see that level of organization. I don't personally do that. Um, because for the types of things I do, it's not yet proved to be necessary, but I know what it is. And I, and I've seen it in play. And if I ever come to the point where that's going to be helpful, now I know that there is a tool, you know. Um, but of course, it's not all just cleaning and and the things you learn. Like I probably learned a lot about how do you mic drums from just seeing the engineers at this studio do it and didn't even realize how much I was learning at the time. Because a lot of times we have this idea that learning needs to happen. Somebody needs to sit you down. And I think I felt that way. Like, no one's ever teaching me anything, you know? <laughs> Someone needs to sit you down and explain it. But you you actually learn a lot by seeing it. Um, and then getting the your little question in here or there. But it also gives you a, a, a huge appreciation when you actually do have your own studio and you're doing your own things to have to have worked through the ranks. I wanted personally, as I think a lot of engineers do, I wanted to be an intern and then they up me to a gopher and then they up me to be a assistant engineer. And, you know, that was the, that was the traditional path. And I was taught that path and I was hoping that would work for me. Um, but that is a very, it's a much rarer path today than it used to be mostly because there's not a lot of staff positions available. And so when I moved to Nashville, I became a gopher at a studio um, which was re- a really exciting experience because in Nashville, there's lots of, ce- we constantly had celebrities in and out, um, and top level engineers. So it was very exciting to be around. I learned a lot, but I was again, hoping for that staff engineer position to come up. And what I learned is 
those do come up, but it happens every like three to five years or something. And if you're just don't happen to be there at the time when that position comes available, like, do you really want to be a $10 an hour gopher for three years waiting to ever get your shot to engineer? Yeah. And that's where you have to just decide to go out and freelance and, and, you know, make it happen for yourself. I I think, I think that's, um, you know, it's completely sensible. And I mean, you know, I, I, I'm up in the North of England and that's not, that, that doesn't exist here. I mean, I can imagine that exists in, in, um, you know, Nashville is obviously a huge music town. Um, that, you know, that classic path, is that what you're saying? Yeah. And I, you know, there are commercial studios up here, but they certainly don't have, um, you know, a raft of staff engineers and the only real way to do it is to, um, to sort of go it alone, which is why it's so, um, and I think that's quite common, you know, outside of the major, major music cities, you know, London, Nashville and all those sorts of places. Um, it's, it's becoming less and less common that people get the opportunity to have an inter- internship. So I think, um, you know, from a, from that perspective, you're quite fortunate to have had one, but then what's nice about it is it's taught you, it's almost taught you what you, from, you know, going by what you're, where you're at now, I'm, I'm talking specifically about drums. <laughs> now I've switched mm. to, I've, my mind's flicked to drums, to drums without even telling anybody. I As have. it must. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you're almost, um, you've almost seen, the excess of drum mics and gone, okay, that's how, that's one way of doing things. And then, you know, got sort of uh, put in a position where you had to do it another way and found out that that way could work for you. Yeah. It, it's funny because I learned the way when you, what to do when you have everything. And so that's what I always wanted to do. And I used to just feel like I needed to have everything. Um, and until I did, I needed to go to somebody else's studio. And then it's only because I got pushed into the position to need to do it another way that I did. And then having done that now, I've learned that there's actually a lot of validity. Um, so where I'm at now with drums, um, my, my current phase is I'm, I'm kind of just in constant experimentation land. So, um, I have very few microphones here at the studio uh, an embarrassingly small amount of microphones <laughs> for being a professional engineer. Um, you know, but I don't, I, my creativity is no longer in choosing what mic I can use because I've got, I've pretty much, I'm going to use them all. It's <laughs> which one goes on what and where do you put it? Yeah, yeah. And, and you realize that there's actually so many things you can do with that. So, um, a lot of times for, for night tides, I've almost always done a mono overhead with the D19. Nice. And then I have the D112 for kick. Would love if that was a D12 instead, but it's not. And so. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard interesting things about the D12s. Apparently they break quite regularly. And, um, mm. and once they're done, they're done. Um, and I've, the people that I've spoken to, you know, I've, I've kind of gone, oh, I'd love to try a D12 out. And everyone goes, I don't know. Um, so really? I've, avo- yeah, I've avoided them a little bit because they're quite pricey given the uh, sort of heritage of them. But now, I, what about that newer mic they released that's supposed to be like the fusion of the D12 and the D112? I've it looks cool. Um, I don't. I haven't tried one. Um, yeah, but uh, I used. Uh, uh, do you have a? Um, I guess you must do. Have SE microphones over there? There's a, a brand yeah. called the X1D, which is discontinued now. But that was my secret weapon for. Um, for kick out mics for a long time it was only 60 60 quid i think it cost me and just sounded amazing completely amazing um in fact the tip off i got from it was from um a nashville um a nashville producer i can't remember his name off the top of my head now he's done loads of Mm. massive sort of country pop um records he's um he always Mm. wears those orange orange glasses like you know with orange um lenses oh interesting can't remember what his name is. Anyway, um, he was the one that I, I kind of found that idea about, and I went and bought it, and it's yeah, it's ridiculous. But anyway, no, I haven't tried the new the their new mic out, and I haven't even I haven't tried a D12. If I'm completely honest, um, I'm kind of where I'm where I'm at. <laughs> yeah, have How'd you, you get, talked I, on the podcast at all about how you do the all you need is drums drums? Like, what do you use for that gear wise? No, I don't. I don't think I have. No. Well. If there's time, I, I welcome you to to talk about that. <laughs> oh yeah, I'll, I mean, I'll talk it through. Um, it'd be interesting to hear your take on it. So my my kind of 
I think I'm living in both camps because of the nature of what I do um, with remote work is not all of the producers I work with are as laid back about sounds as, as you are. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'd love it if that was the case, but it's not. Um, so, you know, I, I, oft, I have kind of setups within setups, basically. I'm covering all bases. Um, yeah. And I have a template that I use. Um, so I run through Logic, and I have a template that I use. And all of the time, like the hi-hat mic is muted. My stereo overheads are muted. My, uh, I've got a, quite a lot of muted microphones that I rarely ever listen to uh, other than to check that they still uh, sound good. Um, but you, you record them because your clients will likely want them or might want them. Exactly. And they're there on the isolated drums. You know, all of those have got... That's If you go look through the multi-tracks of them, they've got all of those mics there. So you could, you know, yes, okay, I might be playing Let It Be or whatever song it is, but you can... Um, you can turn that into a modern, um, you know, modern pop sound if you wanted to. Yeah. It, it's not just committed to four mics. So I basically got um, the D19 and the Coles in mono overhead at the top. Um, and I switch between mm-hmm. them depending on whether, if it's early, then it's Coles. If it's late 60s, it's the D19. Okay. Um, and they're sort of... Are As the you, coals mon? Is it a mono coals or is it? Yeah, stereo? just mono. Okay. So there, it's it's mounted on the same stand, the D19 and the coals. And I, I know that you know it shifts around depending on what pictures that you you look at um, from Ringo recording. But they're basically just sort of chin height if you're stood up. They're not. They're actually quite low to the kit. Um, oh, interesting. Yeah, which I've experimented with. I had them quite high at one point, and I didn't like it. And I brought them lower, and it got quite a bit more actual kit yeah. sound, and I enjoyed that a lot more. Especially the D19. It, the D19, if I could bring it closer to the kit and still call it an overhead, I would, because it just very yeah. quickly stops having a lot of that fullness to it, and it just sounds thin and cymbally. Yeah, and it's got a really nice punch on the kick and snare, um, and the, and the toms just on the drums in general. When you when you bring it closer into the kit, there's it's it's that sound, you know, it's Ringo's sound um, straight away. It's instantly recognizable the the sort of um, the sonic quality of that microphone, and it, it it does give you a nice punch on the kick and snare that um, you know that the Coles does do, but the Coles has got kind of like a a warmth over the top that that kind of negates a little bit of that punch that the, the D19 has, um, mm. I think, anyway. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of how I do it. And then I've got a um, other sort of unique bits. that uh, No, not unique, but the kind of speciality bits are I've got a um, small diaphragm condenser, um, like a pencil mic underneath the snare, um, whereas a lot of people would use like a 57 or something, whereas I'm doing that, that whole under snare yeah. thing. Which is very crispy, <laughs> very crispy. So yeah. I have the fader pulled down on the DAW to, you know, like 10%, if that, because otherwise it just gets way too much. Um, but that's kind of a really nice thing. I like that a lot. And it's, um, it's a nice way of controlling. You get the real, when you're doing a modern mix, you can get the real attack from the top snare top, but then you can dial in as much crispiness, you know, as much of the snare tone as you want from underneath which i quite enjoy um and that's basically it so and unless i'm doing something late in which case i will switch up the toms to to be mic'd underneath because i think that's quite important to get the the sort of tea towel sound um but other other than that i generally am doing kick out with the the sort of large diaphragm condenser um angling down from 12 o'clock sort of towards the center of the kick which gets that nice sort of warm um not very punchy kick sound which i I quite like i'm not a huge fan of kick in really i like just that natural i like to get a kick sound from the room mics and the kick out that's kind of where i'm where my favorite kick sounds are coming from um that's interesting i haven't thought of that before yeah so you're getting like um, a bit of attack and a bit of body from the from you know the sort of twelve o'clock kick out mic, but then most of the the general kick sound is coming from the rooms. Um, that's kind of I don't know. There's something about that. It's almost a chalky sound. Whereas I don't like that. Um, I'm not a fan of that kind of. Um, how would I even describe it? Like a duh sound that you get inside the drum. Um, that it's like a, a quite a modern 
pop kick sound that you know if you buy a sample pack that's what the kick will often sound like and i uh-huh. I don't just not a fan of that sound at all it doesn't sound good on its own it punches through in a mix i suppose for radio but it's not it's not a sound that i'm particularly fond of um i really like that sort of chalky leathery kick sound that you get from from a room mic essentially just enhanced slightly from that kick out mic yeah um yeah, and that, that's kind of it. And so I'm using the rooms, got um, some stereo uh, Reslo um, old BBC broadcast mics that I use for the room mics. Oh, cool. Yeah, so generally the mix that I use on the isolated drums when you download the stereo or the mono mix will be one mono overhead um, and then kick out and the rooms. And then depending on what era of Beatles it is, it will have the snare bottom dialed in too um, and potentially some toms. And and that's it. And I'm and I then blast it through <laughs> a Fairchild plugin and uh, the Abbey Road AT uh, TG mastering thing and uh, do what John John Lennon said and just crank the tops and crank the bottom uh-huh. and, and uh-huh. Uh, like up to full and it suddenly just sounds like like a Beatles drum kit. <laughs> and I love it. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So they're not not doing an awful lot to it really. It's just um, you know. Uh, I think a lot of it is down to the play, the playing. You know, not to not to say that I'm, um, you know, it's all about me necessarily. It's all about playing it like Ringo played it. And that's the that's the sounds. You know, the baggy hi hats and the, the sort of snappy snare drums and all that kind of stuff. I think a lot of it's down mm. to that. I think that's the case. I'm mean, sure you find it in your studio that you can get away with minimal miking when you're recording either yourself or another drummer because the balance, the internal kick balance is there that's you know a minute right i think that the having a lot of microphones um is a tool to use when the drummer's not very good and you're likely to need to do a lot of editing to or mixing to to get a sound that you want whereas with minimal microphones the sound's already there and you're capturing it in in the way you can yeah that's kind of how my mind thinks about it yeah it's a that's one of the uh, important underrated pieces of advice in audio is uh, record good musicians. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, there you go. <clears throat> you know, you might not think you're a very good engineer, and the problem might be who you're recording. <laughs> yeah. I just think back to watching, you know, when I was learning about all this stuff years ago, watching videos and reading about different ways of doing things, and everything was about fixing. All of it was about fixing. Nothing was about making it sound good on the way in. It was all about, you know, so if your snare drum's not quite got the attack that you need, you're like, well, well, hold on. Why has it not got the right attack? Have you used the wrong snare drum? Is he not hitting it hard enough? Like, you know, why are we fixing this now? (laughs) This should have been fixed before this happened. (laughs) Yeah. I think a lot of people in, at least in our era, have learned sort of back to front. And I don't know if that's how it always was. I'm sure everybody learns it different. Um, but for me, I think I learned from, you know, I, I already talked about the kind of lots of mic position, but also just trying to learn what a compressor does. And, you know, I didn't, I, I kind of learned that you shouldn't do that much on the way in and you should leave yourself all these options and you should get lots and lots of takes and you should... Um, come back and make it sound better later and do all your compression <laughs> and everything. Um, you know, I don't actually think that that's completely a wrong way to learn. Um, be- so now I do everything. I think a lot more about the drums in the room. Now I think a lot more about just putting a smaller amount of mics in the right places um, and and I compress on the way in, and I EQ on the way in, and I actually find myself doing today much less to my mixes than I used to do. I don't have to work as hard as it as I used to have to work to try to get a good sound. My sounds today sound better, quicker, with less effort than my sounds in the beginning did, with much more time and effort. And but the thing is that I think, you know, as every engineer says, like so, it comes down to your ears. I think you have to learn what the hell a compressor sounds like. <laughs> and that is such a hard thing to do. And I think only way you could do it, I mean, you, you can learn what a compressor does. You can learn what other people do with them. You can try them yourself. 
Um, but you just have to do it so many times until you kind of hear what sounds overcompressed, what sounds undercompressed, and what sound you want right now. Um, and what happens to sound good today with this drummer and this snare, you know? And But once those things are internalized and you've mixed a, you know, a few hundred songs or whatever, then you can get those sounds pretty quickly because you know what you're listening for and what you're aiming for. And so in a lot of ways, I guess I'm saying like, I, as, as much as the excesses of modern recording and like leaving yourself all this potential and options is, I don't think it's where everybody, it seems like everybody lands at a much simpler place when you get good at it. But I wonder if you need to maybe go through that period of time Unless you were just so happened to be able to be trained by somebody who could take you there straight away, I just wonder if you need you kind of need your time where you're just playing with too many tracks, with too many compressors and too many EQs uh, to learn the things so that later you, you can get there quicker and simpler. I think that's definitely something that producers now have have available to them with plugins. You know, we there was there would have been a time where you know an upcoming producer had a tape machine and and that was all that they had um, yeah. whereas now we we have the option to put you know I, I think back to some of the mixes i did years ago and i dread to think how many plugins are on every channel and all because you know saw this this one particular way of of doing something then this this guy put that these plugins on that snare so i have to you know i'll emulate that and um you know, now uh, very similar to you. I mean, there's hardly anything going on. It sounds kind of nice on the way in. There's a little, maybe a bit of a bit of a tweak here and there. Um, but yeah, you do need to. I, I I think you do need that experience. My my drum teacher used to say to me um, about your ability on the drums is you need to have the ability of a Ferrari, but doesn't necessarily mean you need to drive around at a hundred miles an hour. You can just, mm. you know, you, you can nip to the shops in your Ferrari um, or, you know, or you, or like, you know, you basically have a Ferrari under the bonnet, but you can look like a, you know, a standard hatchback car if you want to. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that's kind of a nice way, you know, when I think that's kind of how I think of my jazz training in terms of drums is, um, you know, I had my, my moment of, of, improvising and and sort of uh doing my thing and making it overplaying and all that kind of stuff and now i've come full circle back to i don't i don't really feel i don't have any need to do that anymore i just want to play what works and it's not about it's getting rid of that ego um but i, I suppose in music production it's not necessarily about ego it's just, Maybe it is. Maybe it's about covering up what you your lack of um, confidence in your ability by thinking that you need to do lots of lots of things to things, and then after a while you go, actually, I can make this sound pretty good by just miking it right and pulling the fader up and um, you know putting this amount of compression on on the way in and EQing this little bit here and and off we go. Yeah, I think my personality is also such that. Uh, I I feel that I'm generally fairly driven and I don't want to be lazy. And so I think from a starting out position you go like okay the the pros they have they do they have all this gear and all of this technology and that's how you'll do it is by using all of it and and so I'm I don't want to be lazy. I'm going to spend four times as long to mix this song as somebody else might because that's you know the hard work that needs to be put in. And um and then it's just been challenging as I like, uh, I recently read Al Schmidt's book um, and he talked about how, you know, they didn't have EQ when he started. So even to this day, <laughs> he almost never uses EQ. His like main thing is he's like, well, I'll use a Poltec and add one high, you know, one, go to the one setting on high end and maybe boost it one on the on the lows you know and that's like what he'll use for eq but he gets all of those all of his great sounds by just using the right microphones in the right place i i love that and it reminds me of another interesting thing about kind of um older gear is how delicate um or not not um you know just talked about the beatles drums you're cranking the high end and cranking the low end literally up to full you could do that on that old stuff. You can take a Poltec and yeah, you, okay. You can tickle it a little bit, but you can crank a Poltec up to the max and it will still sound like an acceptable recording. Whereas you take a, a modern EQ 
and yeah. crank it to the max and it will sound horrendous. So there was the sort of um what's the uh what's the expression I'm I'm looking for? Like the margin of error, that's it, was was sort of a bit greater with some of that gear because it was a bit more mm. forgiving. Um whereas now the gear that we're using is so uh surgical at times that it's not very forgiving at all if you you can really make a hatchet job of something if you're not careful with the way that you do things um and i think that that doesn't make for um for confidence uh, in the studio really whereas when when you know you can have a poltech and just like oh i'll turn that massive knob quite a, a bit <laughs> yeah <laughs> and, it, and it still sounds okay then that kind of gives you a bit more flexibility yeah, so it's kind of interesting point. to hear that I heard at one point somebody said a, a rule they were told was if you're doing more than six decibels of a booster cut, then you're probably not spending enough time with your mic, getting the right micing position. Interesting. And at times I do find myself doing more than a booster cut of six decibels, <laughs> but I have that like that boundary in my head to where I, if I get past six, I go, wait, do I really need this much EQ? And sometimes you do, but generally that's been a challenge for me to kind of try to get closer and closer to just getting it right off the bat instead of needing to rely on your EQs later to create the sound for you. Yeah, absolutely. I, I hear that. It's, um, it's kind of a little warning like that, you know, something was yeah. done wrong on the front ends. You know, yeah, maybe you didn't mic it right. So, you know, you do have to fix it later because you have made an error, but, or, you know, didn't think about the particular sound that that, that instrument's going to have in that particular point in the song or whatever. But yeah, it's just that little thing like next time I'll probably need to think about this. <laughs> um, yeah. Now I hear what you're saying and I, I have, I haven't really thought about it in that way, but I have that same feeling. Um, I mean, something I'm quite interested for you to talk about again is this, um, this, uh, the, Tom miking technique that you read in Al Schmidt's book that you mentioned because I mean I want to hear it again. Yeah, yeah <laughs> I, gen I, I genuinely do, but I know that the listeners <laughs> will want to hear it because it's um, it's a cool little idea. Well, later I'll have to send you the re the recording. Um, oh yeah, please do. Yeah, um, I would point people to the track, but it's not done yet, and I don't know when it'll be out. But um, uh, so. Well, so I didn't read about this in Al Schmidt's book, but some of the principles I did. So one thing I read in Al Schmidt's book is he always uses mics in Omni. And his um, position on it is that microphones are by nature Omni, and that if they're not, it's because you've done something to the capsule to create cardioid or figure of eight, et cetera. So um, you're changing, you know, that uses, I'm, I'm not going to remember, but I think you're using phase cancellation to create that. Uh, or something, however they're doing it, yeah. those scientists. <laughs> but in the meantime, the Omni is the more like uh, pure form of what that capsule does left to its own. And so anyhow, so that challenged me to throw all of my condensers into Omni mode, and I've just been living there for a while now. Um, but the, the Tom thing I did recently um, is just essentially inspired back to what I was saying before, like, I'm using the same mics on every session and I'm always using the studio kit. Like no band wants to bring in their own kit when there's a nice, we have a, Lud, a Ludwig here. It's a nice sounding kit. So nobody wants to bring in drums and I don't want to either. I don't want to move them. <laughs> and so I'm using the same kit in the same room with the same mics and the same preamp every single time. So you got to get creative or you're just going to be bored and, and lose all of your interest in doing this, you know? So my creativity has come in, in outside-of-the-box miking techniques as of late. And so um, the thing we're specifically talking about right now was the idea I had like two weeks ago. And, and it started with, I just thought, you know, maybe this time I'll use condensers on the Tom mics um, instead of dynamic mics like I probably normally would. And so I set up that. And then I looked at it uh, and I set up a mono D19 as an overhead. And then I looked at that and I went, you know... Those are Omni condenser mics uh, placed on opposite ends of the kit. Like, they're going to kind of be like overheads if you think about it. They're going to pick up a lot of the same thing overheads would. Different perspective, but same. You're going to get lots of symbols and everything else. Mm -hmm. 
And typically I've always gone in and, and, um, you know, strip silenced out my toms so that they only pop out when there's actual tom hit and I've cut out all that bleed. Mm -hmm. But I thought, what if I just make it good bleed and make this usable? And, um, and so, and, and I realized that the floor tom mic is essentially in the same position it would be for Glenn John's overheads. Yeah. So, so this is almost just a modified Glenn John's in a sense. So the D19 is above the snare, kind of where you'd put it for a Glenn John's. The, uh, and I was using Sony C38Bs on the toms. So floor tom, just like Glenn John's, by the kick, uh, sorry, by the floor tom, but pointed vertically, pointed towards the snare. And then I just went ahead and moved back the uh, rack tom mic and measured it to the snare so that both of them were equidistant to the snare, kind of like a lot of people do with overheads. And I'm, I sort of, I'm like, wait a minute, these are overheads. They're just not over. <laughs> and so, <laughs> so I started thinking about it that way and then just trying to do what I might do to try to make overheads sound good. And, and instead of only optimize for toms, optimize for the kit. And what I found was like these, uh, it, it essentially becomes both overhead and tom mics at the same time. It's close enough to the toms to get the, some of the low end that you would use a direct mic for, but it's far enough back to get a picture of the kit that can be used as stereo overheads if you want that. Um, and so other than that, I mean, that was a stand, I use a, 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 a Unidyne 3 for the snare most of the time. Um, and then just the D112 on the kick. So that was pretty standard. Um, and then the one other weird thing that I do um, now, all kind of all the time, is I'll put my U87 in figure of eight back into as a room mic. And initially I did that from hearing that the, the Beatles always had like a U48 in figure of eight in the room for the vocals. And so I'm like, okay, cool. I'll get that sound of having that, you know, figure eight mic up. And and then one day I just kind of, it occurred to me that that's, that I could use it as a mid side mic. And when you mid side encode it, um, it turns out that the mono information that you're getting from the kit already, specifically, especially that mono overhead, it winds up giving you a stereo room mic for the price of one microphone. <laughs> and it's not completely accurate to how mid side should be. You should have the mono mic in you know, directly next to the room mic with the capsules coincident, but it turns out it works. It sounds like a stereo room to me. And so anyway, that's, that's my new weird miking technique. I, I love it. I, I, I think I, I mentioned yesterday that it's, um, I was having a conversation with Neil Innes, who I've spoken to on this podcast. He, he has a, a, um, a nice studio here in Leeds and he, um, he explained, I don't think it, he didn't come up with this, but he explained about microphones being like um, cameras and they photograph a particular thing. And I love that you're, um, you've kind of naturally moved towards, um, obviously you're restricted because of the restrictions that you've got on your, your desk, the number of channels that you've got. So you're, you're kind, you've kind of naturally gravitated towards having to be creative with what that photograph looks like, um, that, you know, sonic photograph looks like. And it almost feels like it was a matter of time be- before you came up with something like this because you, you kind of, you're like, oh, hold on, I've only got four channels and I want to pick up the whole kit and I'm using this mic. And actually, if I put it here, I can pick this up and that up. And it all feels completely like, oh, well, of course you were going to get there. <laughs> yeah. uh, I, yeah. I love the, I love it. I love the ingenuity in that and like that you can continually, it's inspiring to me to want to, con- to, to try some new stuff out because I, I generally don't move things. You know, I think I, I moved from like a, a um, sort of wide stereo overhead mic technique to an X and Y technique. And I moved from a sort of spread out room technique to a blum line technique in the room and that's as uh-huh. that's, that's as mad as i've got <laughs> in the last few months <laughs> well also i mean you're first and foremost when you're working with your clients your your art is the drums themselves and so it makes sense you know when i don't get to play the drums i'm gonna you know i have to find my spot to put my mark and and have some art in the whole thing and so it would it would make sense it would be more kind of 
based on what I'm doing, having to f- do that. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> oh, and, and you're having to deal with the, um, you know, the, with the aftermath of it too. So, you exactly. know, exactly. You, know, you, you know what you're going to have to do mix wise to, to, um, to sort of do, get the sound that you're after. Whereas I can't be like, surprise, I've only used two mics. <laughs> Off you go. <laughs> yeah. I think, um, that, kind of just sparked another thought in me, which is just, I think it's so helpful for engineers of all kinds to spend some time mixing and get a sense of like what happens to your tracks later. I think luckily, I mean, for most people today, that's just the reality that you're probably going to have to at least start that way. But I think mixing has taught me a lot about tracking because when you're tracking, you get some cool idea and you think it's going to be amazing. But when you get it into a mix, you realize the challenges with what you've done. Yes. And so I think having a constant, you know, learning requires a feedback loop of getting, you know, feed, a feedback from the things that you've tried. And so when you're the one mixing it, you do, you learn some things and you learn some things about, hey, that might sound really cool when you just hear drums. But once the whole track is there, it actually makes the drums very hard to hear. And anyway, I just think that's a a helpful thing for somebody when just trying to learn tracking is like, well, learn mixing too. I think it, that's absolutely right, and it makes it, uh, it makes it a little bit more um, obvious why you make certain choices and why you put microphones in certain places and um, and how important kit balance is you know this is just as a drummer or even with every instrument like why do we own you know why do we often di the bass you know it's because bass is difficult to deal with in a, in a like if it spills in in a live you know live performance setting and it's easier to to control in a mix and it makes everything all of those explanations become obvious when um you know when you're you're having to deal with that yourself whereas if you're you have no idea. You just know that your bass sounds great through an amp or your kick sounds great when you put loads of low end on it <laughs> and, and loads of, uh, you know, a top in a very specific place. And it's got like this huge, big kick sound. Well, you're, you're not going to have to mix that <laughs> and right. make it, make it balance with the bass and not take up the whole track with like ex- excessive low end. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I think that's a, a, I think that's really important. And it's something I've not really, I sort of guess I've taken for granted myself that I, I do mix and I I hadn't really thought that that's informing my um my choices when I'm tracking. Of course, I mean of course it is. <laughs> and then, but it hadn't yeah. really crossed my mind. I think you're absolutely right. Having having a little bit of knowledge in all areas of a studio is is probably quite important. Yeah, and bringing it back to you know, we talked about songwriting earlier. That's even if you're not the one writing the song, knowing about songwriting is a helpful tool to have, uh, you know, as a producer, I think it's important that you can recognize a good song or not. Um, but it's also good if you know the craft of songwriting to, you know, even when it comes to drums to do things that enhance the song or don't steal from the song that make it better. Um, it, all of your decision, you know, everything, you know, affects everything you do in a, in a certain sense of the word. And so I, I think it's not enough to, to just um, delve into the technical and have a great understanding of what everything does on a scientific level. I think you do need to know that, but really like you, you, you need to know it all. And, and if you can, if you have a knowledge of um, what makes for a good song that, that affects choices you make with a guitar amplifier. Yes. It precisely, it absolutely does. And I think this is kind of, I was I was almost hoping that we'd come back to this place. We ended this conversation yesterday, which the one that didn't get recorded, in a really, really lovely place, which is kind of where we're at now, where you've got this nice balance. But, you know, we, talk, we talked about songwriting and how having somebody who knows an excessive amount about songwriting and, and harmony and, and uh, you know, all of, the, all of the technical details of songwriting. Then you've got somebody like you who knows a lot more you know, yes, okay, you know some of that stuff, but you also know what feels right and you know what makes a great song instinctively um, through your experience as opposed to your education. And that marriage is is really, really works well. And in terms of recording, you know, kind of a nice observation is that 
in the sort of 60s and 50s and through to the 70s, there was this this progression of, of recording techniques where, you know, you take a, um, a trad jazz band in the UK and I can't remember which book I was reading this in. Um, I it will I couldn't remember yesterday either, but I will I, it will come to me <laughs> at some stage. Um, I can picture the book cover anyway. So they were recording this trad jazz band, and they put you know one microphone in front of the whole band, and that that's how they recorded that band as an entity. And the band leaders wow. in, insisted on it. You know they were, I didn't, you were not allowed to close mic anything. Why would you? This the band sounds like a band, and you just you only need one microphone. That's it. <laughs> wow. Um, and that's kind of like early 60s, late 50s. And then you kind of get the Beatles coming into Abbey Road. Obviously, they didn't, you know, didn't, um, they weren't pioneering this. This is just how they did it. But like kit mics would be like one overhead, one snare, uh, one kick even. And then, you know, everything was very simple and then it progressed. And you can see that progression really clearly through the Beatles, which is one of the reasons that they're talked about so much and it's so well documented. And then recording got more and more advanced. Um, and then it kind of got to the Pro Tools era and the era that we have both grown up in, where it's been an era of excess. You know, we've had every option available to us. We have, we can mic up every single drum if we want to and more. And do, you know, we have enough channels on the desk to do whatever we want with. We've got enough plugins available to us to put as many compressors where we want to without having to buy a single one of them. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, and we, and I think what's really interesting observation is the fact that we're having this conversation now is down to the fact that we've grown up in this era of excess, um, which was a natural progression from the way that recording went from the sort of 50s right through to the current day. And we're now having to re uh, to lose all of that or, you know, try yeah. and forget some of that to bring it back around to like, okay, well, what's this about? You know, we don't need to mic every Tom up. We can get that great sound that they got back in the 60s by using four mics and yeah you know I, and I, I really enjoy I really enjoy the fact that that's the that's where we're currently at you know that there are people like us who are sort of you know young uh, young engineers in the world now who are realizing that and that's the reason that we're having this conversation on a podcast about 60s recording talking about modern you know, your records sound modern. You know, they, they've got a vintage... How dare you? <laughs> but they've got, you know, you know, they've got a vintage songwriter feel to them. But, you know, they, they sound like modern records. They, yeah. they, you know, you know what I mean? They stand up in the, on the Spotify playlist and, they, you, you know, you don't go, oh, this was made in the 60s. But it was made with, a te- with techniques that, that... Thank you so much for, well, for doing this again. This is night, night <laughs> two that we've spent with each other. <laughs> appreciate it podcast exists and why these conversations are important because there is so many options available to young engineers these days and it's frightening how many options um and yeah. I, you know it's a uh, it's it, yeah i think that starting starting small or even ending up small like you have and you know and is, is kind of a nice way to to be and it's a nice place to to uh, to end up in and, uh, and when you do expand, yeah. you're expanding one at a time for a reason. You know, like you said, like every every mic you add is added for a reason, and you know what that's going to contribute. It's not just because we put twenty kit, twenty mics on the kit every time. <laughs> right. Do you know right. what I mean? Yeah, it's it's a lot. It it is very hard to give up all those options that you have, but I I do think it's a really valuable exercise. And if there's anybody out there who ha- who's afraid to give it give it up, I feel like. The thing for me that works, just the way I'm geared, is to get re- get really into something. Um, for me, for a while, it was the AKG BX20 when it came to reverb. Okay. Um, that I got really into that. I used it on everything all the time. <laughs> um, but I've switched now to the Capital Chambers, uh, again, UAD. And so every one of my songs, everything that I put out and everything that I produce for other people uses the Capital Chambers almost exclusively that is the reverb. Uh, there's very many, I mean, there's so many options in it. Unless it's like an 80s sounding throwback song, in which case it's the RMX. But like, get into some cool piece of vintage gear, spend $300 to buy the UAD plug or whatever, so that it kind of hurts enough that you feel like you got to use it. <laughs> yeah. You know. I love that. Or buy some one cool microphone. I think it's such, uh, I mean, it's a tangent, but... Um, 
for the longest time, I did not have a stereo pair of microphones here at the studio. And mostly because for most overdubs sessions I was doing, it wasn't really necessary. And it's a lot of money. And I had in my head that, you know, I should have a pair of KM184s. And so I'm looking at, you know, $2,000 maybe or something. Yeah. And, and so I'm like, that's a lot of money. And, and here's what I realized. It took me a long time to get here. But I realized I was not inspired to buy a pair of KM184s. Um, they, I, I've used them in a lot of studios and everybody uses them. And I realized I'm just bored by the idea of the KM184, even though it's a great microphone and it's being used for a reason. And so I was poking around on Reverb and I found the Sony the C38Bs and I found, um, you know, figured out that they were actually a really cool mic at one point in time, but are just less popular or known now. And I was able to find them around $600. Wow. And so I got a, I bought two, one from Japan and one from, I don't know, somewhere else around 600 bucks. It was cheaper than KM184s, which is great. But I found myself getting obsessed with this mic and its look and its history once I learned about it. And that was that that inspiration was what was able to get me to buy it. And then now I have these and that now that's what I'm going to use. But if you can, it's you, you, we don't have the ability, most of us to just like, well, I'm just not going to record with Pro Tools. I'm, I'm going to record on a four track tape machine. <laughs> um, I mean, maybe you can do that, but if you can buy some one piece of cool gear and then just get obsessed with it for a while and overuse it. Um, might be a way to help somebody embrace some limitations and realize uh, that there's a million things you can do with that one piece of gear. I don't know. I think that's absolutely right. And I think that goes hand in hand with kind of what I was saying about having so many options. You know, you can buy, um, you know, 1176, you know, the 1176 I talked about at the beginning of this episode, that's what, 500 quid. That's not that much money in, in the grand scheme of things. I know it's quite a bit of money, but it's not not tons and tons. You, you could conceivably buy a couple of those and, um, you know, and, and that'd be that. And it, and it'd just be part of the thing that you have. Whereas actually, if you've spent £2,000 or $2,000 or whatever on a, an, a significant thing or made a, a significant investment and you learn how that microphone sounds or that piece of outboard sounds or that desk sounds, um, you become intimately aware of all the nuances within it. And that informs all of your uh, knowledge about other microphones as well, even microphones that you don't own or outboard that you don't own because you can com- you've got a comparison to make. Whereas if you're looking at your, a plug-in list and you're looking at 20 different compressors and you're using a different one every single time because you can, um, how are you going to learn anything? <laughs> you know, how are you going to, yeah. there's no comparison there because you don't know any of them intimately. Um, no, I have no, nothing against plugins at all. Right. Um, you know, I should, I should say that, but I, I think that they're too cheap, you know, waves selling them for $29 every two seconds. Right. <laughs> we're, I know. I wish we're they all guilty of it. <laughs> I think waves kind of, started seeming a lot less cool when there was a sale every five seconds. It felt a lot less important. Yeah. You and know? The, you know, the, the price tag that they, they put on it didn't, is just not believable. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> you know, whereas if you've spent $300 on a plugin, like you say, you're going to, you're going to you damn well thing. find some users. For it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and I love that. Um, and I think that we should be doing more of that. We should be, we should be investing in, high quality, higher quality, single or, you know, smaller investments and really learning how to use those things rather than living in this sort of world of excess where we can, we can buy this clone and that clone. And, um, you know, just, just because, you know, because it's cheap and, and I want to, I want my studio to have that, that piece of looking gear in the rack, you know? And in the meantime, if you can't afford it, get the thing you can afford and figure out how to make that thing sound good and you'll have learned a valuable lesson. Absolutely. I agree with that too. <laughs> That's great <Yeah>. advice. <laughs> okay, there we have it part two of my conversation with ryan paul i really hope that you enjoyed that and enjoyed a little break away from the um relative intensity of the ted fletcher lectures which we will be returning to next week um 
if you did vote for Night Tides in the uh, sort of Nashville radio voting um, thing that happened, um, my mind is in a thousand different places, so I can't remember the exact name of, of what it was, but Ryan messaged me and they managed to get through on a wild card um, and he's uh, very happy. So the next round of voting will be around now. So if you do happen to uh, visit the Night Tides Instagram page, um, Ryan's got a really cool approach to social media. So I do actually recommend you go and check out the Night Tides Instagram page. It's pretty funny. Um, and if you're in the US and would like to support the band, please do so um, and help them out in this um, Battle of the Band style radio competition. Um, it's really nice that this community exists in, in order to help uh, with things like that. Um, okay, so as I said, next week we're returning to the Ted Fletcher lectures. Um, and I've also uh, done conducted numerous interviews um, in this interim period. So I've got some quite exciting guests coming up over the next few weeks um, once the next section of lectures is finished. Um, so yes, that just leaves me to say if you uh, would like to rate the podcast, as I said earlier, on Spotify or iTunes, wherever you're listening to this podcast, that would be much appreciated. You can contact me through my website, which is allyouneedisdrums.com. Um, you can also visit that website and find out about the free isolated drums that I give away and drum sessions and all the kind of other bits and bobs that I do. Um, also, a big thank you to Joe Kane for the intro and outro music, to Adam Mallet for the artwork he designs, and to Rory Hancock for constructing the podcast and uploading it and doing all of that jazz. Um, most importantly, thank you to you for listening, and I will be back next week. Goodbye!